Thank you for visiting the openword.org, where you can find a verse-by-verse exposition of almost the entire Holy Bible and other theological resources. Welcome to the next part of the series from Alan Schaefer. Vance Hammers talk about the time he and his wife were driving through the Blue Ridge Mountains or something like that, and he came on this old house where this lady was, she was sort of old, she was sitting on the porch, and his wife said something along the lines, man, she looks so peaceful and restful. She must not what's going, you know, she must not know what's going on too much in the world. And he said, well, don't tell her. Let her die in peace. You know, don't let her know. All right, now, Paul's expanding his um, discussion of how to behave yourself in the church to now talk about members in the church, how we, how we interrelate to one another in the church now. In chapter 4, he's talking about, Timothy, how are you to act? How are you to respond? How are you to relate? What are you to do? In chapter 5 now, he's going to tell Timothy, how are people in the church to respond to one another, how, to, how, to, to act? Do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father. What does he mean by that? Respect. Respect your elders. Respect older men. Um, in that society of those days, age was a sign of respect. You were to respect those who were elder. Now, Paul tells Timothy, don't let anyone look down on your youth. Okay? How do you, how do you reconcile, don't let anybody look down on your youth, command and preach these things, with the statement here, do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father. Well, don't let anybody look down on your youth. I would, I would think that that would tell me I have to earn the respect of the older person. What's he tell Timothy here? Do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father. But what does exhort mean? To strengthen, to encourage, to teach. It's attitude here. Paul is not telling Timothy, don't correct an older person. He's not telling them, don't teach an older person. He's not telling them, don't command and teach the word of God to an older man. He's saying what you do is you do it with respect. It's respect. It's not that you don't, it's that you respect them. So in the church as, an, as a person, how am I to treat people? I'm to treat people with respect, especially my elders. I'm to treat them with respect. It's, it doesn't say I'm not to teach them. I'm not to browbeat them. I'm not to lord over them. I'm to teach them with the proper attitude. Do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father. Talk to him like you would talk to your father. Well, you know, yeah, 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 rings, you know, yeah, nowadays. You treat them with respect. And treat younger men as brothers. How do you treat your brother? You know, hopefully you treat him with respect. This is all talking about family, isn't it? The older man is to be like your father. The younger men are to be like your brothers, like you're the older brother. Older women as mothers and younger women as sisters. So 
Timothy, how are you to treat people in the church? Like their family. Respect. And in those days, family ties meant something, unlike today. You to treat people as brothers and sisters. You treat them like family. And what's interesting is on the young women part, he says, with all purity, because what would be the common tendency for a young man? Immorality. So don't go, treat them like your own sister with all purity. All right? Now, no matter where you land, now he's talking specifically to Timothy, but by extension, we can put ourselves in this too. He's going to talk to all groups of people. But specifically here, he's talking to Timothy. This is how you treat people in the church. They're family. The older men and women are like your parents. How would you treat your parents? With respect, with kindness, with care. How'd you treat your siblings? With respect. And you wouldn't think of sleeping with your sister. Treat the younger women as your sisters. With all purity. Honor widows who are really widows. Honor them. What's a widow? Well, a woman who's lost her husband, right? Now, in those days, they did not have Social Security. So a widow was dependent on what? On somebody else. Women didn't work in society for the most part. And a woman who had no husband was dependent on her family for living. And Paul is saying, I want you to honor widows who are truly widows, but if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show piety at home and to repay their parents for this is good and acceptable before God. What Paul's talking about here is this is, this is what happened in the early church. This goes back to Acts 6, right? What happened in Acts 6? Deacons. Right. And what was the job of the deacons? After the widows. The widows that were part of the church. They were to look after them. Particularly they were to take them food and care in the day, right? They didn't have refrigerators and stuff like that, so each day they would ensure that the people, had, you know, the widows had something to eat or cared for. That was their job. And that was one of the tasks of the early church, to care for its own. Now, is this church, by and large, is the church supposed to care for the widows? Yes. But, What's it say here should first do? Family. All right. Paul was a Republican. All right. You can explain it to her later on, okay? Yeah. I'm joking there, folks. No. What, what Paul is saying here is where does the care for the widow start? Family. With family. And what he's basically telling the church is that if, you have a, if you're a family and you have a widow in your family, her primary care is to come from you. If she has children or grandchildren, let them first care for her. 
Let them show pie at home and to repay their parents, for this is good and acceptable for God. It's pleasing for God for you to care for your family. My responsibility as a son is to ensure that my mother is cared for if she becomes a widow. It's part of my job. It's part of my responsibility. Why? I'm to repay them. That's how I repay my parents. That's a social contract. What we do today is we send grandma off to the rest home. We stop in to see her once every other week. Back then, you cared for your parents. You cared for your family. You took care of them. You watched them. Now, she was really a widow. So you got widows and really widows. The widows are widow widows. The really widows are the ones who have no family to care for them. Okay? And left alone, trust in God, and continues in prayers, supplications night and day. The woman who is a true widow has only who to depend on. God. God is the God of the fatherless and the widows, remember? But she who lives in pleasure is dead while she lives. What does he mean by that? Yeah. Could be immoral. It could be. So there's two kinds of widows, right? There's the widow widow who continues in prayer and supplications, depends on God. And there's the other widow who is lives in pleasure. And let's be honest, what was the one occupation a woman could do in those days? Prostitution. My version says wanton. Wanton. Okay. And these things command that they may be blameless. So the church is to care for what kind of widow? One who is a widow indeed, who lives godly lifestyle, by as evidenced by her prayer and supplication, and later on by her hospitality, the washing of the feet, etc. Those are the ones that you're to worry about. These things command that they be not blameless, but if anyone does not provide for his own, his own what? Family, and in context, widows, and especially for those of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than infidel. What do you do with those who deny the faith and are worse than infidels? You throw them out of the church, right? Paul is saying that the one... He's, he's telling the church, you need to care for your own family. And if you don't, you've denied the faith. You're worse than an infidel. You're worse than an unbeliever. You're worse than a pagan. Because even pagans care for their family, right? So this is, this is talking to the problem of widows in the church. You've got unmarried or women who've lost their husbands, they've died. They have no one to care for them. The first line of defense for them is their own family who's to care for them. And if they have a family who does not care for them, that family has done what? Denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. They're to care for them. Do not let a widow under 60 years old be taken into the number, and not unless she has been the wife of one man. What is he talking about here, taken into the number? 
Mm -hmm. But what number is he talking about? Yeah. And what were, what the ones who are in the number, what what benefit did they receive? Not from the church. Now you look at it and say, well, Paul's being pretty hard-nosed about this. Well, let's stop and think about this. You're a woman. You've lost your husband. And you hear about this place in town where they take care of the widows. Now what are you going to do? Go over there. <laughs> See, she's smarter than she looks, right? You're going to go over there, right? Of course you're going to go over there, and you're going to take advantage of the church. Whether you're a member of the church or not, you might be a pagan. You're going to go over there because I'll take care of you, right? Now, what is Paul saying about those people? Should they be taken into the number of the widows that are cared for by the church? No, because they've not proven their lifestyle. They've not proven their godliness. He's talking about the people in the church. The widows that you take care of in the church are to be members of the church. They're to be those who have ministered to the saints. And it says there she needs to be the wife of one man. Does that mean she only needs to be married once? No, what does it mean? One man woman. Now, earlier on we talked about a one woman man. This is a one man woman. This woman who was devoted to her husband. If she's one who's been running around with everybody in town, she's not to be taken in. This is a, man, a woman who has shown loyalty and devotion and fidelity to one man. And she needs to be well reported for good works. In other words, she needs to have a good reputation. If she has brought up children, if she has lodged strangers, if she's washed the saints' feet, if she has relieved the afflicted, if she has diligently followed every good work. If she's taken care of people, exhibited a lifestyle, and he just lists some of these things here. One, um, if she's brought children, does that mean if she had no children, she's not allowed to be cared for by the church? No. I don't think so. I don't think he's trying to exclude, well, you know, the, only the widows who've had kids can be taken care of. No. But if she has had kids, how has she raised them? All right. Um, if she has lodged strangers, what does it mean to lodge a stranger? Hospitable. hospitable. Is she hospitable? If she has washed the saints' feet, what does it mean to wash the saints' feet? Humility doesn't mean she, you know, has her pan and towel. It just means that she serves other people. She might serve in the church. She might do different things. But the idea there is hospitality, service to others. If she has relieved the afflicted, what does that mean to care for the sick, the hurt, nurse people who are sick in the church? If she has done followed every good work, if a woman has sixty years old, if she has lived a godly life. She has been devoted to her husband. Take her into the number if she has no one to care for her. And why is Paul setting this up? 
Why is he saying all these things? Isn't he being pretty hard-nosed about this? He's trying to say, see what you have, here's what you have. We talk about this. You have a tension between a freeloader and someone who's responsible. Paul is not giving any deference to a freeloader. Someone who just wants to mooch off the church. He says there has to be some things that these people, if they're being cared for by the church, then they need to exhibit certain patterns of behavior. Patterns of behavior which show their, their appreciation of the church. Not just a freeloader. They need to be at least 60 years old. That's beyond marriageable age. Have no one to care for them. Now, what if a woman is 55 and she falls into this condition? Is she excluded, you think? Paul's trying to give some general guidelines here, all right? I don't think he can be legalistic about this. He's trying to give you some general guidelines. Right. He's trying to say before you put somebody on the role of the church, widow, make sure she qualifies. And if she does, put her on the role and care for her. But if she's on the role, and he now he turns to the widow, if you're on the role, here's what's expected of you. Wash the saints' feet, serve the church, take care of the afflicted. Don't just sit around your hut all day and watch soap operas. Well, they didn't have TV back then. But don't sit around. And it's interesting that, that the Bible looks down on people who sit around. Notice that? It looks down on them. Because he says in verse 11, refuse the younger widows. If a woman is 30, 35 years old and her husband dies, don't put her on the role of the church. Why? She'll probably want to get remarried. She might, you know, this is a commitment. She's making a commitment to the church. Because when they begin to grow wanton against Christ, they desire to marry. Now, understand what Paul, Paul's not trying to make this, well, you know, if you're a younger woman and you want to get remarried, that's a bad thing. That's not what he's talking about here. But evidently, they had some process why if you were taken in as a widow to the church, there was some kind of almost formal arrangement that you had with the church. And you make certain commitments to the church to do these things. Well, if you make the commitments to do these things, but you're still very young and you want to be married, you want, you're going to have a tension there, aren't you? You're not going to follow through on your commitment. That's what he's talking about. Having condemnation because they've cast off their first faith. The idea of faith there is they've made a commitment. All right. And in fact, the Greek word here, faith, could mean pledge. So what you see in here is that evidently, we're reconstructing this from the text, evidently, if a woman went on the role of the church, there was some sort of commitment that she made. She's saying, if you take care of me, then I will. And then she, you know, takes care of the saints, you know, serves on hospitality, you know. There's something she reciprocates back to the church as best she can. And, and I promise to do this. Well, if she's promised to take care of the things in the church, but then she runs off and gets married. She breaks her promise to the church. That's what Paul's getting at here. 
So what does he say? Besides, they learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house. Not only idle, but gossips and busybodies saying things which they ought not. If a woman is not busy doing things, and she's being cared for and fed all day long, what's she going to do? She's going to yak and yak and yak and talk and be a busybody because she's not busy. She's not doing anything. She's not idle. Yeah. Where it is assumed that the older women are mature enough to not. Yeah. What do I desire? Verse 14, I desire that the younger women's marry, younger widows marry, bear children, manage the house, give no opportunity to the adversary to speak reproachfully. So what's the younger widow to do? Remarry. Remarry. Now, you know, Paul's not saying every young widow has to remarry. He's not saying that. All right. He's basically saying if you're a younger widow, you should remarry. Um, Mm-hmm. I don't know whether that was carried over into the New Testament. They still did that a little in the New Testament. But the whole idea here is that there's a, there's a great value placed on the younger women marrying. And what was their role? Have children, raise their family. And it says here, manage the house. Why? Why does it say here? So they wouldn't be a busybody, they wouldn't be idle, they wouldn't be gossipy, so that they would not do what? Make God look bad. It would not make God look bad. Okay? If you're a young widow today, you don't have a job, what's that going to bear? Well. Get a man, somebody take care of me. A widow. Yeah. But they didn't want to hear from me. I was crying when I had a job. Now, let's think about this a minute. Think about our election. Don't look at the men, look at the women. What's your assessment of the first lady and the potential first lady? Generally, which one reflected family values better? And so which one was, if you had to ask people generally, which one would they be attracted to most likely? Well, I'm just saying, I'm just saying. You mean in our society today? Yeah. They look at the work woman. It's interesting. They did a study on this. I was listening to somebody doing a study. And the study they came up with is that most Americans see the role of the first lady to be exactly what Laura Bush does. Yes. <laughs> she needs more explanation after class, Yeah, bro. I still get no way that's I 
Sí. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, the, 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 what Paul is generally saying here, just generally, is that when, and, and by the way, he's going to say it back in Titus. When your home reflects God's original pattern, what happens? How do people see that, positively or negatively? Positively. Positively. I'm telling you, I work with women at, at Moen that if you really ask them deep down inside what would they want to do, most women would love to be at home with their kids. I'm telling you, that's the way it is. Yeah. Well, she is with a kid when you're at home, but you know. But 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 no. The point. The point is, most women. If you set them down and say, if you could marry someone who would love you and take care of you, and you could stay at home and raise your kids, would you like to do that? Most women, if they're not nuts, most women would say yes. That's what I want to do. I want to raise my kids. Why is that? That's God's plan. That's the way God has designed and created and programmed a woman. And most men, quite honestly, most men would like to be able to care for their families. And would like to come home to a hot supper. What? Somebody did a study and said that one of the things that that since women have entered the workforce, most, most, uh, that's what's really destroyed the wages in that in the country. I mean, it used to be you could run a gas station to make a living. Can you do that now? No. No. You know, that actually the women enter the workforce is depressed wages. And they said they did a study, and most women who work in two income family earn $2 an hour net. Have to pay for child care, additional car, food, lunches, taxes. They make an additional two dollars. You contribute eighty bucks a week to the bottom line after you pay for all the other junk. Most, not all, but most. All right. Yeah. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. When you look at the Bible, and even though our society, you know, most people cough up a skull when they think about you know, making a woman stay home with her kids, you know, <clears throat> you know, like the Sanger said, I think it was a Sanger that said, what's, who's later now? National, National Organization for Women. Margaret Sanger, is that? One of them there. She said, being a, a housewife and a mother is an illegitimate occupation. Wow. Yeah. Now think about that, but not long. Okay. Paul is saying that when your family reflects God's pattern, it brings adornment to the gospel of God. It makes God look good. And he's going to say that later on in Titus 2. He's saying when you, do, when you have a proper home life, it's going to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. It's going to make it look really good. And so when people see you and they see a stable family, 
all right, it's going to attract them. And although they might viscerally react against that because of the conditioning of our society, there is something deep down inside them that says, I wish I had something like that. You want to live like, what is the family that they have on TV? The guy's a drug addict, his wife's got, got cancer. The singer, what is this? Osbournes or Osbens or Osbournes. Yeah. You want a family like that? Kids on drugs, moms got proms, dads. You miss it, all right? There's a, it's a reality TV series, the Osbournes, you know. Ozzy Osbourne, you know. You know. Yeah, and kid, sons on drugs, and yeah. You know, the, the point is. Yeah, you just keep, you just slide right by that, you know, channel. But the whole point is, look look at the look at the the TV shows, the the sitcoms, the the broken families, the you know. And it's interesting. One of the top rated ones is Seventh Heaven. What's that? That's a normal family. Yeah. You know. Yeah. It's a normal family. But, but Paul is saying here, in the church, the younger women should marry. They should take care of their family, their home, so that they would give no opportunity for the adversary to speak reproachfully about their actions. All right? They're to take care of their family and raise their children and love their husbands and keep the house, manage the home. And believe it or not, really, most women, when you boil it down, most women would just, they'd love to do that. They might not believe that. They might think they need the career because that's what society tells them. But they would, you know, I, I've known women at, at, at Moen that when they've had children, they never came back to work. They wanted to be at home with their children. I don't blame them. I don't blame them, you know. Hey, Ellen, um, help me with this one. As a Christian counselor, I mean, right now I have a couple that are gay. Well, two, two lesbian women. And they have children. And they're having problems in the relationship. And uh, they want me to do couples counseling. And is my goal to preserve that family unit or to say, well, since they're lesbian, it's not God's will anyway, and let them sort this out. A child is involved. Oh, yeah. Well, that's a good. How do you come up with these? Do you sit up at night trying to come up with these? No, I'm, I, no, I, 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 I know. I'm choking with you. Um, I mean, I, I have a couple. Well, since you don't have anybody to tell you what you can and can't say. Yeah, I can do anything I want. You do anything you want. <laughs> but I'm saying from a biblical perspective. From the biblical perspective. From the biblical perspective, you need to bring, I think you need to bring the truth of the Word of God to bear and tell them, saying, look, I can't tell you how to live your life, but nothing's going to work out for you. The best you're going to do, the best you're going to do is learn to cope. But you're always going to be in turmoil because what you're doing is contrary to nature. I mean, prior to my yeah, yeah, you know. You know, so that's what I see. Yeah. Did they stomp out? No. No. But 
And it says here, for some have already turned aside after Satan. The whole idea of turning aside after Satan is if these women are not busy. Bottom line, if you're not busy and you're sitting at home all day, what are you going to do? Yeah. Watch soap operas and get in trouble, right? Yeah. Yeah. And they had the same problem back in those days. You'd be go talking to your neighbor and you'd run the gossip and, you know, you'd be talking about everybody and you'd be getting into trouble and everything else. If you're not busy, if you're not busy, you're going to get yourself into trouble. If any believing man or woman has widows, let them relieve them and do not let the church be burdened that it may relieve those who are really widows. If you have widows in your family, your, your job is to care for them and not force the church to care for them. You care for them first. Don't let the church be burdened. Why? So the church can concentrate on those who are really widows. Now, the idea of being put on the roll here seemed to be a permanent kind of thing. It wasn't a temporary kind of thing. So I don't think it's wrong today for a church, for example, if a woman, you, you, had to, you had it happen to you, your husband died. Yeah, but your husband died. But if you had not had a job, you'd have had to have help. You know, and, you know, that, that was something to bridge you to the point where, you know, you could get on your feet or whatever. There's nothing wrong with that. Paul's talking about a permanent kind of thing here. There's always those temporary crises in life. So, you know, if you're in a church and a young woman has lost her husband, you say, well, I'm sorry, we can't help you because you're too young. Go get married. Well, what does she do between the time she gets married and now? She's got to eat, right? You got. She's got to eat. Help her out. Help the woman out. But the long-term goal is not to keep her on the rolls forever. The long-term goal would be for her to marry. No. 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 Because, see, we got the federal government that does that. See, they didn't have Social Security in those days. They didn't have benefits like, they didn't have survivor benefits, and they didn't have life insurance. When your husband died, you were on your own, buddy. You know, that's all there was, you know. So Paul is trying to say here, those who lost their husbands, the families to care for them first, if not the churches to care for them. And evidently, this was a problem in the Ephesians church, and we know from Acts it was a significant problem in the early church. Because the widows had no one to care for them. And Paul is dealing with a contemporary issue. But by extension, the principle applies today. The church could, should care basically for the people in the church. But we are not to become enablers. It's one thing to temporarily help somebody through a crisis. It's another thing to enable them if a man loses his job, help him a little bit. But if it's obvious after a short period of time he's a bum, he's a lazy, good for nothing, Paul says if any man does not work, neither should he eat. Don't enable him. Then he turns and he says, let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. Who's the elders? The pastors, the leaders of the church. 
be worthy of double honor. What do you think double honor means? I think respect and remuneration. Some would say they need to be paid well. Now that doesn't mean Rolls Royces, does it? No, that's not what Paul is saying. But if you're an elder and you rule well, what are you given over to? The church. You spend your time in the church. You're to be paid appropriately. How much should you pay your pastor? How much should you? Yeah. What's that? Okay, so a pastor and a young wife come in, you know, and you, how much money should you pay them? You're on the church board. No, it doesn't. It, it does, but it, it shouldn't. Huh? Define well. Dollar figure. I'm just trying to get you to think. Yeah, I'm just trying to get you to think. Or you should pay them. Sometimes smaller churches are financially able. Yeah. But I won't always depend on the size. I think the way, and I know this because I'm on the finance committee, is you need to take care of them. And um, one way to do it is you, you find out what what a good living wage is and what comparable positions pay, and you pay in that range. All right? You pay in that range. Some may have a training, time, energy, effort. But the point, the and the size of the family, the danger is you can be too chintzy. Um, I can tell you this. We hired our pastor June of 2003. All right. And um, we hired him at, at a particular wage level. And six months later, we gave him an increase when it was evident that, you know, this is where he was called. And this is where, so we gave him an increase. Then this year, just normal raise time came around. That's in July for us. And I remember sitting in our financial council meeting, and we were talking about things. And, you know, we, we mentioned something about, you know, how, you know, we were, you know, church finances were a little tight. And he said, look, I don't want my weight. I don't want the raise. I don't need it. Take it back. He forced us to take his raise back. He said, I don't need it. He says, you've given me enough. I have enough. Take this and give it to somebody else. I don't need the money. You know, that that told me a lot about him. Told me a lot about him. Because, you know, he wasn't in it for the money. He makes good money, but um, he was in it for the money. He wasn't in it for the money. Give it to somebody who, who needs it worse than I do. I don't need the money. Uh, uh, an elder, on one hand, he is not to love money. He is not to chase after money. That's his role. Your responsibility is you pay him appropriately. And what we do here, for example, at the church, is we try to 
find out what is the you know what is the average salary level for a person in a support position and we try to get close to that now you know we're not going to be the same as a Ford plant we just we don't have that kind of money but we try to pay a living wage a reasonable wage you know well you know sometimes dealing with recalcitrant sheep is a little worse than putting tires on a vehicle eight hours a day you know my arm hurts, my yeah. hurts, my shoulder hurts, my leg hurts, my feet hurts, my face hurts. What's left? Now, who, who, who is to get double honor, especially those who, what's it say here? What's the word used? Labor. Labor, what does that carry with it? Work. Hard work. Work to the point of exhaustion. Yes. Those who labor in the word and in doctrine. It's amazing. Um, we've been blessed here at Open Door by pastors who labor in the word and doctrine. And I remember listening to John MacArthur talk about the panel he was on. Somebody asked him how many, he was on a panel with three, two other pastors, and they asked him, the panel, how much time you spend preparing a sermon? One guy said, well, you know, I sort of figured out Saturday night what I'm going to preach on. Another guy says, well, I wait for God to tell me what I'm going to preach on as I get into the pulpit. And he said, these are well-known preachers. And he said, well, I, I told him, so I spent about 30 hours on a sermon. 30 hours on one sermon. That's laboring in the Word. He spends, he spends 25 to 30 hours. You know, and you could tell it by his preaching. When he stands up and he preaches that text, he's been, he's been thinking about it for 25 or 30 hours. This is something that you labor in. Paul's saying, you, you give them double pay. And so, and in fact, I think MacArthur brings out this means double pay. Not only do you pay them, you double pay them, especially if they labor. Now, they are not to demand this pay. You are to give it to them. Okay? For the scripture says you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. What's the general principle there? If you've got an ox who's treading out your grain, don't put a muzzle on him. Why? Yeah, if you want him to let, trample out the grain, make sure the thing can eat. The laborer is worthy of his wages. That's a quote, I think, from... Christ, it's one of those passages that tends to, I, I'm pretty sure that is. Verse 18, Luke's writing, it refers to Luke's writing in Scripture. Luke said that, the labor is worthy of his wages. If you work for something, you've earned it. When Moen pays me, it's not out of the generosity of their own hearts because I've put my time in. I've worked for them. This man who is working for the church needs to be paid appropriately. Give an honor. And don't be so cheap that the guy can't provide for his family. Well, if he wants a job at a small church and he's young and healthy and the small church is paying 
Well, that's what Paul did, right? Although Paul said, I, 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 I deserve to be paid by you. I, I forego, I, I didn't demand that. And I've known pastors that do that, where they don't, you know, they work and then they pastor a church. And they don't demand, you know, a salary, you know. Then verse 19, this is interesting. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. What does it mean there? Accusation of what? Anything. Why? Yeah, it goes back to the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, a criminal law, you are not to receive an accusation except two or three people. Yeah. And what Paul is doing here is he's building in a protection because if you're the elder, what's going to happen? Yeah, everybody's going to accuse you of all kinds of things. And what Paul is saying, he's telling Timothy, and by extension the church, don't listen to anybody who accuses an elder of anything unless two or three of them come. Now this would stop a lot of church splits right here. I've had somebody come up to me and says, let me tell you about David Walls, and they'd land me on something. I said, well, did you go talk to him? Well, no. Well, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. I had a guy come up to me, and he's mad at me, angry, frothing, because I wouldn't go and, and, and you know, to David Walls and our, our former pastor, I wouldn't go to him and, and chew him out for something. And it's like, it's not my, he didn't offend me, it's not my, you, if you're upset, go talk to him. I'm not going to receive an accusation against an elder unless two or three people come and they're willing to substantiate it. And by the way, I had a couple people do that. They said, you know, we need to go do something here. And I said, okay. If I go and I talk to them, are you willing to go with me? Are you willing to say this? Well, no, not really. It's over. I'm not going to do it. If you don't have the guts to go do it, I'm not going to do it for you. I'm not going to fight. I'm going to be your sacrificial lamb. Yeah, they want they want you to go shoot the guy, but they don't want to shoot the guy. Yeah, no, it doesn't work that way. If you're upset, you go. You follow the procedure. And, and Paul is telling Timothy, do not allow people to say anything about your elders unless two or three people are there to substantiate it. Yes. And those who are sinning, rebuking the present of all that the rest also may fear. So if you're an elder and you're caught sinning, what should you do? What should be done about you? Rebuke before? Why? Why? You hurt the whole church. You hurt the whole church. The point is, if an elder is caught in sin, don't hide it. And it also makes others fear doing the same thing. Yes. Because they'll be dealt with in the same way. Exactly. Do it publicly that others may fear. Don't hide it.
we have this idea that, you know, if the pastor's caught in sin, we just sneak him out the back door and he rides off into the sunset and goes and does it in another church. That's not the way Paul saw it. Expose it. Let it be seen. And let people fear. Don't hide it. Who's doing that these days? Who has the nerve to approach a pastor and tell that deacons want? I've seen it happen. Yeah. Yeah. We had it happen here in this church. Yeah. And Paul is saying here, I charge you for God and the Lord Jesus and the elect angels that you observe these things without prejudice. Whoa. I charge you before whom? God. Who else? The Lord Jesus and? Wow. Paul is saying, God, Lord, and the elect angels are watching. And what are you to do? You're to do it without what? Prejudice. Oh, we can't do Mr. Big Preacher because that would make out. No, without prejudice. You do it to everyone. Paul is saying here, no double standards. And if there is any double standard, which one gets the heavier whipping? The elder or the parishioner? The elder. We have a double standard in that we'll go after the, the parishioner and we'll leave the pastor alone. Uh-uh, uh-uh, uh-uh. That's what he's saying. What? Because they're... Look, they are a rep representative. And then sometimes you have situations where they deal with the congregation, I mean the pastor, but not the congregation. People yeah. Congregation. Mm -hmm. You know, I... Situations like that. Look, I've been, folks, I've been through all of this stuff. Yeah. I'm speaking from experience. I'm not making this stuff up. I've been there. I've been through it. I've faced mm -hmm. it. I can tell you from, from what I've experienced that the Bible is right. You do it the way of the book. What's the book say? Go one-on-one. -on -one. That doesn't work, what do you do? Take two or three. And then what do you do? Take it to the church. It works. That's the way it does it. And if somebody comes up to you and says, well, let me tell you about what, and I had him. I had somebody come and say, David Walls is a liar. Told me he was a liar. Okay. What did he lie about? Well, he's a liar. Okay. Okay. What did he lie about? Well, he's a liar. Well, what, give me a date. Give me a time. What did he say? What? Well, he's a liar. Aren't you going to do anything about it? And he hung up the phone a little later. It's like, no, I'm not going to do anything about it. If, you, if, you, if all you can do is sit here and accuse the guy of being a liar, but you're not willing to tell me when did he lie, what date, what was the lie, how, how do you know it was a lie, and you're not willing to go with me to confront him, I'm not going to do anything. No. I'm not going to deal with it. That guy left the church, and I said, well, don't let the door hit you on the way out. Um, I'm not going to deal with it. He called me. I was at home. I, I remember. I was at home, called me up on the phone and wanted to make accusations and I couldn't get him to say what it was. Well, he's just a liar. And I said, are you going to talk to him? No, I'm not. You need to do it. No, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to fight your battle. You do it. 
It works, folks. The Bi it works the Bible's way. And I would not receive an accusation against an elder if that person was totally unwilling to deal with it. I'm not going to deal with it. Now, if they had done the proper steps and there was no resolution, okay, I will go with you. But I'm not going to do it. Just to show you how, I mean, this is maybe five years ago. I was sitting with one of my tax clients 20 or 30 miles away from here. And we're talking sometimes. And I said, well, I haven't attended church yet. Oh, we heard a lot about that church. And that pastor's pretty arrogant. There's been a lot of problems. I'm not getting this if they're not even a member of it. <laughs> and that's how things spread, the gossip and so forth. And I, I, just, I was astonished. You know? Let me tell you something. When you say bad things about your church, <laughs> You're saying bad things about God. Don't ever, don't ever accuse people of that. Yeah. That, they're, they're, you know, and I tell, I said, well, what about David and Saul? What kind of person was Saul? Now, now, I want you to think about this. What did David know? Who was? What else did he know? Because he was the next one anointed, right? And yet, when he had every opportunity to do in Saul, what did he do? I'm not going to touch the Lord's anointed. God will deal with him. And when God, even though, even though now, you know, if he was the average American churchgoer, he said, well, God's anointed me. Pre I'll kill him, and that's how, no, it doesn't work that way, right? And in fact, when he had the opportunity to kill Saul and he cut off the little hem of his garment, what did, what did he later on, what did it say about him? How did he feel about it? He felt bad. He felt bad. He said, I shouldn't have done that. Now that would, you know, just think about it. Paul is saying here, look, the elders in the church, they are to be honored. They are to be given double pay. They are to be protected. If they do sin, they are to rebuke before all. And the way you discover their sin is you have two or three witnesses who will substantiate the claim, not just somebody who makes this stuff up. You And I think, I, I think in there it's due diligence too. All right. It's not just two people come up and say, "Well, we heard the pastor." No, you got to substantiate it a little bit here, you know. All right. And Paul is saying, "Yeah." And Paul is saying, "I'm charging you, Timothy. I am telling you this in the presence of God, the Lord, and all the elect angels. Do this without partiality." Don't treat some elders better than others, and don't treat don't, God is not partial, is he? No. In fact, if anything, God is more severe on those who are in leadership than he is on those who are not. Do not lay hands hastily on anyone. Nor share in other people's sins. Keep yourself pure. What does he mean by that? I think it means at first, don't be quickly to, to bring judgment or, or punishment on a person. Make sure all things are clear before you do that. Right? Mm -hmm. 
because before it was talking dealing with uh, an elder who he has sent, but Well, MacArthur talks about here that it has the idea of laying hands suddenly on commissioning him for service. Yeah. It could be what you said. Um, I th I'm probably leaning a little bit towards the laying on of hands for service. Don't do it too hastily. Why? What do you need to do before you lay hands on a man? Take some time. It goes back. What is it? It goes back to number three. Let them be proven. Why? Because if you lay hands suddenly on them and ordain them without doing due diligence, you may be partaker of their sins. You may be too quick. Mm -hmm. Take your time. Be careful about it. Don't be so fast to commission people. And that's why, you know, that's why, you know, I, I really think we miss this boat here when it comes to elders, pastors, teachers. Where's the best place to get them? In the church. In your own church. Because yeah. you've seen them. Yeah. You know? I've got a 20-year, uh, see, I came here in 1977, so I got a 27-year record in this church. You know, people have seen me for 27 years. If I just walked in the front door and said, hey, let me teach Moody class, what do they know? They don't know. They don't know me. I need to be proven. You know? And um, that's where you, 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 you know, this, this idea of shuffling pastors from churches, you know, they just, they go from one church, you know, they, they you ever watch the Dilbert, read Dilbert cartoons? Oh, they're great. But usually a reorganization is done in a company to cover up all the mistakes you made. Oh, yeah, that's, all right? And most pastors leave a church to cover up their mistakes. They don't get along with it. You know, they, they totally make a mess of a church, then they go somewhere else and start over again. I know, I know some pastors that they no, no longer than two years. I firmly believe this. I think that the effectiveness and depth of your ministry is inversely proportional, or, or excuse me, is directly proportional to the amount of time you've been in a church. You, you go out to, to Grace Community Church in Sun Valley, California. John MacArthur's been there since 1969. What do they know about him? They've watched him raise his kids. They've watched him raise his family. They watched his kids raise their families. Mm -hmm. They've watched him through the death of a mother. They've watched him through one trial. They know that guy. And in some ways, that's why his ministry is so deep and effective, because they've seen this guy for a long, long period of time. You look at other great preachers, Charles Stanley. How long has he been down at First Baptist Church Atlanta? I mean, I think Noah just got off the ark when he showed up, you know. Um, you look at some of these other pastors that, that have been at, at, play, at ministries for a long period of time. You know, there's a virtue to that. I understand that God calls people different. But the longer you're at a church, the longer people have seen you, the more things they've seen you go through, the deeper your ministry is, 
and the greater your effectiveness is because they've watched your life. So when you stand up and you talk to them about something, they've seen it. They know it. They've seen how you've dealt with it. Paul's saying, don't be so quick to affirm the ministry of someone. Be careful. Check them out. And and what do you check out? Their theology? No. No, I mean, you know, you could you could give them an ordination council and go through the theology and get all the answers right, and they could be, you know, having two women on the side and you wouldn't know it, right? Watch their life. You do. You got to check the theology and the character. The character. You know, I was saying this uh, minister. The church is, no, no, I can't say that. The church hires its minister from out of state, just pretty much out of the theology. Mm-hmm. And they were recruiting on the couples to have good sex. <coughs> and, uh, you know, I have to maintain 100% confidentiality, so the church hires it. And so I said, you know, this is, I mean, I, I, I really confronted him about it. He said, well, I don't think we can work together because we have, you know, so many different perspectives on the direct. <clears throat> so what? Yeah. But this church, I mean, they didn't, obviously the church couldn't have checked out anything more than their credentials because they didn't know them. They're out of state. They were yeah. fresh out of seminary. And, and uh, You know, I, I just shake my head here oh, saying this doesn't right. happen, you know. I mean, I just give it, I mean, I don't, these, these, are, these are not yeah, everyday. Yeah. No, it's right. not. No, but I, I mean, what is happening? this kind of stuff happens to me all the time. I, I just have to keep from getting demoralized. And, 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 yeah, when they say, well, I'm sorry we can't work it because we have a different perspective, say, yeah, I guess you haven't read your own Bible. I mean, yeah, you know. But they were justifying it. I mean, they had a lot right now. What part of what part of the, these people are disqualified doesn't doesn't really, folks. You know, I don't know. Is this hard to understand? Am I missing it here? If you're not qualified, you're not to be an elder. If you're not a one-woman man, right. you're disqualified. That's not that you know. I don't know how, how do you subject that to interpretation. You know. So when the pulpit committee, the search committee, doesn't want to follow this First Timothy three guidelines, you're outnumbered. Then what? 
say, no, we really should go according to this, and we really, well, we really should do this. Depends on what happens. You know, if they get a man in there, you you got to prove them. I'm telling you. Now, I don't know. They're paying the consequences for not following the scripture. Yeah. And that's why you got all kinds of dysfunctional churches. I hate to use that psychological term. But dysfunctional churches that bring shame and reproach on the name of Christ. Get out of there and find something that brings honor to his name. If you go into a church where the pastor is living in immorality, what are you doing there? You, you honestly think when he gets up and preaches that God's talking through him? You really believe that? And in this situation, the congregation's not really having an idea about it. It's very yeah. secretive and outside the congregation. And you're stuck because you can't break the confidence because of the confidentiality. But you can certainly pray that God will expose it. You know. And you know what, what will happen eventually? Oh, it's going to come out, right? You can't hide it. You know, you can't hide it, all right? What President Bush says, you can run, but you can't hide. You know, they can run, but they can't hide. It'll come out. Well, see, you know, and part of it, part of it here, it goes back to the power of the word. You know, but what does it mean that they're thriving? The church is in numbers. I don't know spiritual. Oh, shoot. You know, you can fill a church with, you know, get some dancing girls. You'll fill the church up, you know. I mean, have, have Vegas night. You'll fill the church up. Um, all I'm, look, folks, I can, this is the ideal. What's the ideal? Character, 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 character. By the way, he can teach character. Well, you know, yeah. Now, in verse 23, Paul says to Timothy, No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent infirmities. Why is he throwing that? Well, what is this? What kind of letter is this? That's a personal letter. He's just giving him a bunch of exhortations. Trying to help him out with all of his things. And, and evidently, you know, don't drink only water, but water. use a little wine. Yeah, you know, and again, this is not, you know, Chardonnay or Asti Spumani we're talking about here. This is, this is technically grape juice that's just got a little bit of an edge on it, a very slight edge. We're an alcoholic Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you can pull that one out. Paul's telling Timothy, take care of yourself. Some men's sins are clearly evident, preceding them to judgment. But those of some men follow later. What does he mean there? Some, some sins are out there for everybody to see. Some of them come out later on. Or revealed where? In, in the end time. Likewise, some good works of men are clearly evident. Those that are otherwise can't be hidden. Sometimes you know what's there. Sometimes it's some. Now, let me ask a question. If you do due diligence, if you observe the life, if you do the best you can, you lay hands on the guy, and then he becomes a shipwreck. You know, Paul's not saying 
don't ever lay hands on somebody, right? He's saying, be cautious about it. Take an appropriate amount of time. You know, Paul, Paul had Demas. You know, Demas was a fellow laborer, a great guy, helped me out. And then at the, you know, 2 Timothy, he's forsaken Paul. Sometimes, folks, you do the best you can, and you wind up with a bad apple. You know, all yeah, all Paul's saying, yeah, all Paul's saying to you is be careful. Take your time, do due diligence, and even though you may do due diligence, if that guy has some sins, what may happen? They may come out. They may never come out. You may find out about them in the judgment, right? But good works come out a little easier than the bad, don't they? It says here. His good works may be evident. Take a look at the life, folks. Take a look at the life. Paul, the bottom line here, the bottom line that Paul's trying to get at here is being in spiritual leadership is a great responsibility. It is to be reserved for men who are qualified to do that. You are qualified by your character. It helps if you can, you know, you've got to be apt to teach to be an elder. That's obvious. But character is everything. And if you blow the character, you're disqualified. Because you represent Christ. You represent Him. You represent the King. And He's saying, be careful, man. Don't take anybody who comes flying in, lay hands on them, throw them up in spiritual positions of authority, and hope that they, they do all right. Check them out. Check them out. Because if you don't, if you don't do due diligence, God holds you responsible. Now, if you do due diligence, you do the best you can, you know, you can't see the heart. That's not what he's talking about. Just be careful. Be careful. And those that are your pastors, honor them. Give them respect. Pay them well. Protect them. Don't let somebody come in and say anything about them. Check it out. Don't receive an act. Don't even entertain that. Don't repeat it. I think it's horrible. You know, like Bart said, you know, well, I heard about your church. You know, he's an arrogant, pompous, whatever. You know, I was like, well, where'd you get that? Obviously, they didn't get it. They probably didn't show up at our church. Somebody else blabbed it. Hey, this is God's church. This is God's church. Be careful. Well, Peter pulls that out. He's saying you're going to be held accountable for the way you treat. Folks, I'm just, I look at David and I see a man, he knew he was second and he's going to succeed Saul. He knew it was a matter of time and yet he refused to lift a finger against God's anointed man. In spite of Saul's wickedness, in spite of Saul trying to kill him, David said, I will not touch the Lord's anointed. And when the time came, God took care of Saul. 
And no one could say David did it. No one could blame him. Yeah. Israel could not say David killed Saul to become king. Nope. It was evident it was God. So let's pick up there next week. Father, thanks for this day and for the time we've had to study. Help us to think about these things. Help us to practice them. Help us to be godly men and women for you in Christ's name. Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.